Now, I would uh, encourage and invite you to turn back with me to James chapter 4. Before doing that, I meant to say this morning, uh, earlier that I, uh, I was just to pass on. I was really in, had a great morning this morning at Esk Valley. Uh, I think the uh, bulletin was over favorable in saying that I was preaching this morning. I wasn't. I was simply visiting and uh, I did a reading uh, with them. But it was just really encouraging to be at Esk Valley Church. Great to see uh, over 40 people there and uh, quite a number of, of regulars weren't able to be there um, and to see new faces and old faces and uh, a community beginning to bind together and know one another and uh, think about evangelism and think about uh, just how they can uh, develop the work. It was really great, really encouraging and uh, uh, you know, I would encourage you to take a visit out there sometime uh, to encourage Tom and Charlene and the leadership team and the congregation. Um, it's really thrilling to see God's work progress and the, the partnership and the cooperation that's happening uh, there. So remember Esk Valley and Cornerstone uh, and other churches uh, in your prayers also. But tonight we're going to look, uh, and I hope the young people at Identity will uh, discuss some questions related to this fantastic chapter in uh, the book of James. I think normally we uh, associate, or generally speaking anyway, we associate wisdom with age. So you all think I'm wise and sage, because compared with most people here, I'm old. Uh, uh, but, you know, as a kind of rule of thumb, uh, we think, you know, you gain more wisdom the older you get, that you really become wise uh, as you get old. Not, not always. But, you know, as a general rule of thumb. And that, I think that's reflected, um, it's reflected quite a lot uh, in a way, uh, I'm sure it's reflected in lots of different ways. But when you see people being interviewed now, either in magazines or in uh, or on television, one of the questions is quite often, what would you tell your 16-year-old self? And they used to have that question. But it's a great question. And it's a question that presupposes that you've, had a great deal of experience and you're much wiser in your old age, what would you say to your 16-year-old self? And that would be, I think, the, the general uh, thrust of people's thinking in the world, that the older we get, the wiser we become. Well, the great thing to know uh, to a congregation whose average age is probably about 27 is that that needn't be the case. Uh, because what we have in the, in the teaching of the Bible in James is revolutionary and radical, because what we're being reminded of here is that wisdom, the wisdom that God thinks is significant, is important, is a gift from him. It, we don't necessarily need to become old. Becoming old helps, and no doubt we do mature, but we, are, we can be gifted wisdom uh, for our day-to-day -day living and live with God's wisdom in a way that is very, very radical and very uh, revolutionary. Because we are new people. That's why. Because in Jesus Christ, we are new people. We're not the same that we were. We are being transformed. 2 Corinthians 5 Verse 17, therefore, you know it well, memorize the, the reference. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and maybe behold, behold, the new has come. We're new people. Okay, that, I want that to be the foundation of what 
if you'll stay with me tonight and as we think through this, uh, remember that, that the conventional thinking of uh, wisdom being uh, um, uh, belonging simply to the, to the aged is not necessarily the case. Our, I want you to consider your perspective of life changing. That as a believer, you've been, you know, and the Bible uses that language um, for a reason, that you're reborn. It, it isn't just an add-on to your life. It's not just something you grew up with. It's not just um, a dimension. It, we, you know, Jesus says that, that we, we're turning a completely different direction. We've got a whole different set of powers and uh, graces available to us. And to be a Christian is to be abs- very, very different. And therefore... Um, there's this constant recognition of needing to be changed and being able to be changed, reborn. So as believers, we breathe God's wisdom. That's what you're to do. You know, we've spoken about James before and the New Testament reflecting um, the life of God, the life of God and, and the wisdom of God and uh, what God wants for us to live. Well, in 1 Corinthians 2, I think the second quote is quite a long quote, but I want you to stick with this quote. It's very important. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of the age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. We all like secrets. Which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the deep things of God. I should have read that in NIV, it's better. But, better translation. But that's what we have. We, we breathe God's wisdom, it's God's gift to us, and we can live that. Look back to uh, verse 13 of chapter 3, which is, the paragraph before the one we read. Who is wise and understanding among you? Okay. It speaks about wisdom. And then uh, we recognize that uh, throughout this book, we have teaching and truth of wisdom. Because we have changed what we've become. And you know, the book is about acting. Uh, not as in performing. It's about uh, not just simply hearing. It's about acting on what we hear. Chapter 1, verse 22, the core verse. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Because if you're just a hearer of the word, you're, it's like looking in a mirror and forgetting what you look like, spiritually speaking. So, the wisdom of God and the Bible is like a mirror. And when you look in a mirror, generally speaking, ordinarily, because that's the purpose of them. You're looking at yourself. You don't really look in a mirror to look at other people. You look in a mirror to see yourself. And therefore, what that teaching is reminding us is that the Bible is there, the wisdom of God is there to, make, to encourage us, to challenge us to look at ourselves. So, this evening, don't look around at other people. I don't mean physically. I mean mentally and spiritually. Don't take the message for other people this evening. 
Don't apply it to other people. But take the word this evening like a mirror. And can I ask you to uh, really be challenged to apply this word as I have been ripped apart by it this week. So may you be uh, in a good and positive and wholesome way be ripped apart uh, by uh, the word of God. Buzzwords, empowerment, and happiness. These are two kind of words that are popular today. Empowerment, you know, the ability to change things, and being happy. Well, this is what this chapter's about. And so we're either going to look at Christ's wisdom for making us powerful, able to change our our lives, or the world's. And the same with happiness. What's our experience as Christians, okay, when it comes to feeling a sense of empowerment and feeling happy? Now, if I was to ask you that question honestly this evening, now none of you would give me honest answers. But if you give yourself honest answers, what would it be? Uh, is your experience of Christian, your Christian life, is it one that is exciting, challenging, renewal, uh, refreshment, like a new life, where you're happy uh, and content, and when you, where you feel empowered to live your life? Well, I wonder if that is the case. I hope it is. I pray it is. But our experience is often like what James is describing in this chapter, that there is an internal war in your life. What, quarrel, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this one B that your passions are at war within you? So the, what, what God is speaking about here is saying, look at your own heart and look at your own life and say, what, what's happening in your own heart? There's an internal war so that you hear the truth, you know what the Bible teaches, you know what other Christians are saying, but actually there's this war going on because you know what God wants, but you're also fighting with what you want. You know God, who God is, and you know he's good and right, but actually he seems to be in the way of allowing you to have a good and happy and blessed and fulfilled life. You're frustrated with your Christian life, and there's an anger in there that uh, you know what God wants, but I, I know what I want, and I want to get what I want. And there's this wrestling between what I want and what God wants. And my Christian life or my life as a whole isn't working out to the plan that I had for it. And so you're wrestling with why is God doing this? What is God about? Why is my life so unfulfilling and it's supposed to be fulfilling? And I want to do things that I know are wrong. And so there's this battle and there's this struggle within your heart. And so an internal war internal, maybe frustration, and sometimes anger. And how does that reveal itself? Well, I'll tell you how it reveals itself, because James tells us. It reveals itself when you are not at peace in your own heart with God and have not dealt with the self in your own heart. Then it reveals itself in being, first of all, at war with other people. You desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. 
And James is there saying that there's something that's not right within ourselves, and it works itself out in division and in anger and in judgment of other people. So you have this internal battle, but the way you deal with that battle is to ignore it in your heart. And you focus your attention on the failure of other people. You recognize that there's a problem within your own heart, but you would rather not deal with that, and I would rather not deal with that. So what we do is we blame other people for that. We blame other, primarily in the community of Christianity, we blame other Christians. Christians have let me down. Uh, That's why I'm not happy as a believer. Their behavior, their lack of love, they don't understand who I am. They don't get me. They're not interested in me. I don't fit in to this community. Uh, I'm too holy for them, or uh, they are too holy for me, maybe sometimes. And uh, what they're doing is wrong. And so we, we... we, we lay on them the anger and the dissatisfaction that stems from our own heart. And that's good, you know. We feel good about that. It makes us feel better about ourselves because it puts us in the place of judgment. It keeps us from allowing God to judge our own hearts. And we place ourselves in the seat of judgment and we judge other people. It's what he goes on to say in verse 11. I'm going to jump around a little bit. He says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But isn't that so often what we do? Because it gives us that sense of empowerment and that sense of significance that we are doing what's right in comparison with the failure of everybody else. And we can find some level of contentment in there. Not dealing with our own heart, but finding fault with others and comparing ourselves to them. War with others. War in the church. Judgment. Gossip. Bitterness. But kind of worse than that is that we find ourselves at war with God. You ask, you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So there's that whole thing within us as well where we want the blessings. We crave the the sweetness of Christian truth and reality in our own lives and the friendship and the hope that it goes. But maybe we are angry with God because of the sense of responsibility and the the weight of the truth of God in our lives. We would rather dictate to God. We would rather allow ourselves to continue to be sovereign over our passions and over our lives and over our choices towards happiness. And it means often in our lives two things. It means when we're uh, at war with God, in our, and remember this is, Christians that James is speaking to and you and me we stop praying you know he says that um, you do not have because you you do not ask and he's speaking about his wisdom he's speaking about uh, that happiness and that empowerment in our lives Uh, but he says you've just stopped praying you stop praying as a Christian because we find praying boring uh, repetitive After a minute or two, we were distracted or were lost for words. 
we have nothing more to say. It's, it's empty. It doesn't make any difference to us. And ultimately, we really don't need it. We don't need it. We can live our lives day to day, as he goes on to say in verse 13. Come now, you say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there and trade and make a profit. We would just make our plans without God because it doesn't make any difference. We can still plan our lives. Prayer doesn't make a difference. We will be alive tomorrow. We can fulfill our dreams and we can still carry on, as it were. And prayer doesn't, isn't an asset. It's just a liability for us. So we stop praying. We stop praying. Because we've misunderstood grace and wisdom and what God requires of us and what God wants for us. But maybe we don't stop praying. Maybe we just pray badly. You ask, in verse 3, and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your desires. So we do pray, and I'm sure you've said this, I've said this, and I've heard it pastorally many, many times when people are struggling spiritually or have drifted from God, I've tried praying, but it doesn't work. I've tried, it just it doesn't work. So, and, and it's a very difficult um, situation to, to speak into. But as God says here, we're asking wrongly. We're seeing God as the provider to give us happiness on our terms. To give us empowerment our way. We're wanting to remain as we were. We're wanting to remain what we were like before we were new creations and still be in control. That our will will be done rather than God's. So when we pray, we're seeing on our terms. We're wanting him to answer the things that we think that we need rather than what he says that we often need. He's our winning lottery ticket spiritually. He's our spiritual sugar daddy. He's the one that we go to and ask for things. And when he doesn't give us these things, we complain to him. And we say prayer doesn't work. So we, we presume on tomorrow and we stop praying and, and the relationship with him goes. Now, these are very, very spine-chilling and uh, solemn words, really, aren't they? And they're very uncomfortable in our lovely new church. You're sitting in very comfortable seats. You may feel uncomfortable spiritually. And that's good. That is great. Because that's how God wants us to feel. Because he wants to bring his wisdom into our situation. He wants to transform our lives. He wants us to be new creations. He doesn't want us to be prayerless. He doesn't want us to try praying and feel that it's failing. He doesn't want us to be at war with our fellow Christians and with others. He wants us to know him and to know his wisdom. There's one more stage in worseness before it gets better. And that is his diagnosis. In terms of God's wisdom speaking into our situation, when we feel like that, when we have stopped praying, when we constantly choose our own will rather than his in our hearts and in our lives what is what does god say into that well it's a crisis isn't it he says you adulterous people that's what he says 
he says, you're cheating on me. That's the language he uses, very powerful language. That you see, your profession of love for me is worthless. It's like any of us in relationships saying, I love my partner, but I'm going to sleep with someone else. The profession of love, the vows that we take are meaningless. If actually by our life and by our thinking, we are showing that we, we love something or somebody else. We're denying God's truth. We're rejecting his word and his promise. And in reality, when it says that we're adulterous people because, he says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He's really saying, you love yourself more than you love me. Because that's really what, that's the core of worldliness, isn't it? He's not speaking about the world as, as a geographical place, nor is he speaking about nations or, or even individuals. He's talking about the world as an attitude of mind, an attitude of heart, which ultimately is self-love, the idolatry of loving ourselves before loving God. It's the deepest idolatrous battles that we ever face. <laughs> it's, the, it's the ultimate battle that we face is this love of self, before love of Christ, before love of his will, my will, I want, I will have, and Jesus will simply be in the background. And so we feel significance and empowerment and happiness will come my way, even my interpretation of what might be uh, biblical. So Jesus I'm tired of your demands. I'm tired of the battle. Jesus, I want it easy. I want my old life back. Jesus, I love you, but I want to be I, I want to be in charge. I want to make the decisions. I'm I'm happy being in charge. Because I can compare myself with others and I'm fine. I can blame others and feel good about myself. But what God is saying. You're his enemy when you think like that, when I think like that. And there's a, an emptiness. There's a real emptiness when that is our spiritual experience. So now I begin to conclude with a great section in this chapter. Uh, and we remember from what we read in First Corinthians before the, the wisdom that God gifts to us. Uh, or, or the wisdom that we can have is God's gift to us. He enables us if we will hear him and respond to him and rely on him and return to him. He will give us the power to transform lives and our life and genuine happiness. The kind of things we look for away from him with ourselves in control. Uh, what therefore must we do? How can I be wise? How can, God speaks his wisdom. He's exposed us with his wisdom. How can I share in his wisdom? Well, it's really very simple for us as Christians. It's to use his scripture and this book and these words as a mirror into our own soul. That's what he wants us to do here. He is longing for us to 
submit ourselves, as he says in verse 7, to God. Draw near to God. He will draw near to us. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Well, this is the best bit. It doesn't sound terribly enthusiastic for us, does it? But absolutely the core for our day-to-day living is to recognize that what God wants to do with us is not change the person next to you, not change your husband or your wife, not change your children, not change the church, not change the government, not change the nation. His primary work is to change you and to change me, our hearts. That's what he wants for us to do when we find that our will is battling against his will. What he doesn't want is to just ignore that and blame others or go on a rant and a rave. What he wants us to do is to to look into our own hearts and to deal with that selfishness and that anger and that pride and that deception and that insecurity and that lust and all that lies within us honestly because we we are allowing his mirror to shine into our hearts rather than maybe the mirror of other people which can sometimes make us feel good about ourselves because we're, we're better than them. But the mirror is, because he's perfect. He's absolutely, he's infinite, he's eternal, he's unchangeable. He's perfect and he's perfect in love and perfect in love for others. And his law for us is a perfect law which says love me perfectly and love others perfectly. And therefore we find, my goodness, how selfish is my life. How selfish is my complaints and my issues and my desires and my longings. I think it's a kind of fairly accurate rule of thumb to say that generally in community, those who shout loudest and complain about others have the most to hide themselves. Because the louder we shout, the more we are deflecting from our own needs and our own the battles that we choose not to fight in our own hearts. And so the great battle that he wants us to recognize and wants us to see is what I want in conflict with what he wants and to recognize that he wants to change us from the inside out, transform our lives and open our hearts to God. And that requires both humility and repentance. It requires recognizing that we need to be cleansed, that there's an ugliness, that there's a self-centeredness that dethrones God and that keeps him from that right position of lordship. Verse 5, and I'm not going to spend time on this, but verse 5 is one of the most difficult verses in the Bible to translate, and none of the commentators agree on it. So we're not going to come to a conclusion. Uh, it's a really difficult verse. Says, or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Do you know what that means? I doubt it. I don't think really any of us properly understand what that means. Partly because uh, it's given as a quote from scripture, but it's not found anywhere else in scripture. So it seems to be what James is saying is that the, the thrust of all the scripture that there is, is that... God gives us his Holy Spirit not to be a spirit that is jealous and self-centered because he goes on to say, rather he gives grace. So when we have been made new creations, 
it's not to stay the same. It's rather to be full of grace. So as believers, salvation is a big thing. It's a gift which is a huge gift from him. And as Christians, to be uh, separated and angry from one another and divisive and prayerless is... um, he uses, you know, he uses strong words. He didn't say that's just not terribly, terribly good. He says it's murder. That's what he says. It's murder. You're like murdering one another when you're when you're behaving like this. He, you know, he's using very strong, not 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 physically, not not in in that sense, but in in a in a divisive, damaging way. He's saying if this disunity is as bad as murder to me. Because I've given you a new heart, which says, of course there's tensions, but I've given you the spirit to work through that, to change that, and to transform your heart, to deal with these issues in our lives. The Holy Spirit he gifts us is not one that uh, promotes selfish ambition, but promotes something radical, life-changing, and new that makes the Christian community, as it's outworked, radical, life-transforming, and new. And he does that by his grace. He empowers us to live this way. He empowers us to change. We need to open our hearts with God. That means we need to... If you're going to look in a mirror, you need to find a mirror. And you need to go to it and spend time grooming from it. And if we are to know this in our lives, we need to spend time in him, in his word. Not intellectually, although it involves our intellect, but relationally. This great God who wants us in relationship with him, in this jelly, beautifully uh, perfect relationship. And he wants us to spend time then allowing his truth to change our hearts to cause us to come to our knees, to be cleansed, to be purified, and to stop being double-minded. That's when prayer comes alive, when we understand that he's not our Santa Claus figure and we've run out of things to ask for because he's never given us in many ways. And my big toe is healed. It's when we recognize he wants something much deeper, He's wanting us. He's wanting our very being, our very soul, our very selfishness. And he wants to transform that so that we live in relationship with him as something that is real. And therefore, we live in relationship with one another in something that is real and radical. We open our heart to God and at the same time we submit to him and we resist the devil. So there's that recognition of relationship. Huge relationship. But relationship in, in a battlefield. Okay? Uh, that we know that as believers, he wants us to submit to him. It's, it's interesting language, isn't it? It's interesting language. To be a Christian is to submit. That is to recognize that he's right. And he loves us, and his way is the best way. You know, go back to 3.17 when he speaks about the, the fruit of wisdom. 
Wisdom, God's way, is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. If you had a Kirk session, a deacon's court, a membership and a community that lived by these standards, man, we would be life transforming and we are. And we can be and we can strive to be more so because submitting to him is beautiful. It's tough, but it's beautiful. Consciously doing what God wants, recognizing that in, in any relationship, this, my friends, takes time and energy and commitment, just like looking in a mirror requires action. So being Christ's, yes, salvation is a gift, but it's a gift that brings us to life. And then we don't just sit and become fat and inactive and disobedient. He wants us, by the power of his Holy Spirit, to pray and to worship and to learn from him. And in so doing, recognizing a spiritual battle where the devil is to be resisted, where we turn from him, where we say no, primarily to self. Um, and then to the passions that follow from that. But in a practical way, in the church and in the life of the church, because this is what James brings up, uh, when we're tempted to covet or to fight and to quarrel, uh, say no. Choose not to pass on, as Cody was speaking about last week so powerfully, how we speak how we act, how we think of one another. The things that feed our self-righteousness and our ego. Be aware that we resist that, that we flee from that. And there's a kind of, uh, there's a dual action. We flee from that, he flees from us. So we, we push him doubly far away <laughs> from us. And we flee because he flees also. Uh, and recognize that responsibility that we have. And therefore, the outcome. What's the outcome? The outcome is that he draws near to us. I would, I would argue that's the one thing we all long for more in our Christian lives, that God would draw near to us. We often feel that he's far away. And maybe we just feel passive about that and say, well, I'll just have to wait until he comes closer, until I'm revived. But you, do you see the, the, the order here? We draw near to God, our responsibility and our grace and the power of the Spirit. He will come to us. It's different from the order we sometimes think. Because in salvation, he comes to us. But we go to him in our Christian lives and he draws near to us. And then what does he do? He lifts us up. Verse 10 says that, you know, humble yourself before the Lord. He will exalt you. He will lift you up. And I think these are two really great concepts to uh, um, fuel our desire for happiness and for empowerment to change. Not looking for change in our circumstances necessarily or in our church or uh, in our 
wife or our husband or our family or our situation, but primarily seeing the empowerment being personal, that our hearts, I can never love Christ. I can never do these things. I can never be a proper Christian. He says, yes, draw near to me. Deal with these things, that that selfish will that clogs my life-giving blood. And know that I will come near and know that I will lift you up. That's, you know, we, we, want, we want to be lifted up, exalted. But our sinful natures want us to be exalted for the wrong reasons. But he wants just to lift us up just nearer him. And to be what we were created to be. And to be whole and to be strong and to be gracious and to be Christ-like. He allows us and he wants us as we are transformed by his wisdom. So may it be that we take this marvelously practical book of wisdom, the old New Testament Proverbs, and apply it to our lives because we all have to and we all can. But what it does require is that you do business with the living God. You must do business with the living God. You must be someone, and I must be someone, that deals with the living God, that we cannot be Christians that are dependent only on other people or on public worship or on sound bites or on anything. You, we can be Christians once removed. We have to be people who eyeball God. We deal with Him one to one and we confess the things that separate us from Him. And we examine our will and our desires to see where they counter or are different from God's. And we seek forgiveness and grace. And we'll be lifted up and he will draw near to us. And our Christian lives will be transformed. Amen. Let's pray briefly. Lord God, we ask and pray that you would teach us from your word. We know and understand that sometimes it's, it's very sharp. Um, sometimes we struggle with it. Sometimes we battle with what it says. We are uncomfortable with its truth. And yet these are the great piercings of a friend, uh, the stabbings of uh, one who heals, one who, like the great surgeon, wants to take from us the things that deceive and separate us and uh, can never bring wholeness and genuine long lasting happiness and forgive us when we do settle for second best which actually is enmity to you and is not even second best forgive us for living like old creations with all the sin and brokenness and death that is associated with that and help us rather to live uh, in our Christian lives so that we can soar on wings like eagles that we can run and not be weary and walk and not faint because you're a great providing loving longing God who wishes to draw near to us who will happily as we are humble before you lift us up and make our lives miraculous and our grace impacted communities uh,
transformational and powerful and uh, influential in this city that we love and that we long to see submitting to the great wisdom of the cross and of Jesus and of the salvation that he offers. We thank you that we can confess our sins because Jesus is our wisdom and the cross is the expression of the great wisdom of God, foolishness though it is to the world which mocks and laughs and looks on. May that never be so for us. We ask, Lord, that you would help to transform us by your grace and the grace of wisdom and all its beautiful characteristics that we have read of in James. For Jesus' sake, amen.